Hey everyone, and welcome to Timeline Scavengers, the podcast specifically designed to last forever. I'm James Anderson, one of your hosts. And I'm Colin Parker, your other host. On this show, we're going through the MCU in historical order, scene by scene, until the end of time. That's right, Colin. And I want to get our previously on, uh, our second to last previously on for 1945 out of the way right away because uh, tonally, the shift is going to be dramatic. Drastic. Yeah. So, previously on Time on Scavengers, in India, a pregnant Aisha gives, gave Hassan a new walking stick as he worked in the rose fields, both excited about the prospects of the future. Hope. All right, that's Life, enough of that. Love. So, um, yeah. let's move on to, um, yeah. So, this is going to be about two movies. Now, this is very interesting because for a long time, it was just going to be a Black, Black Panther clip, and then Eternals came out. And took place at the same time. So this is the first, I think this is the first time. I think this is the first time we've combined this. I mean, like, what if and Thor, but those were alternate universes. What if and Captain America were two different universes. Well, but like, I don't think we ever really covered the same. I don't think we've done two properties same time. Right. Like, we've we've split those into two episodes. And I think that, like, we probably still will in other situations. Because there's, especially if there's, like, larger scenes happening. Right. That need to be broken down, right? But in this right. situation, it's like, what a heavy topic, and what could you bring to the conversation a second time? You right. know, this is exactly. a very clear, let's combine e- these. Exactly. Um, so, uh, let's start with Black Panther. Okay. Um, as uh, So, this is going to be uh, Black Panther, 1 minute 22 seconds to 1 minute 38 seconds. And then it's going to be Eternals, one hour, 24 minutes, 37 seconds, to one hour, 25 minutes, and 40 seconds. So here's what happens in Black Panther. Uh, as you'll recall from the uh, two, uh, sorry, I got to scroll back down, from the uh, 2988 BCE to 200 AD episode. <laughs> large span of time. Uh it uh, it ended with but as Wakanda thrived and now we continue that sentence all these years later. The world around it descended in further into chaos. To keep vibranium safe, the Wakandans vowed to hide in plain sight, keeping the truth of their power from the outside world. As the narrator says this, we see tanks fly by, planes in, or <laughs> we see tanks. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Planes uh, in a dogfight and a mushroom cloud, and then we see a, a shield and then a cloaking mechanism go up over wakanda and it looks like trees now shield trees um not trees by the company shield which are of course in the redwood forest all right so uh then this is what happens in eternals a mushroom cloud over hiroshima the in the wreckage of the aftermath fastos grieves racked with guilt blaming himself for having brought the technology to the humans which resulted in the development of nuclear weapons he tells Ajax that he agrees with what Druig said in Mexico in the 1500s, that this mission was a mistake, that humans aren't worth saving. She embraces him as he weeps. So, I set this, I originally had this set on August 6, 1945, but I moved it to August 11, 1945 to allow for it to be not right these eternals walking into a freshly bombed hiroshima and also for the shield and stuff to go up over wakanda sort of right. give it a, a almost a week after hiroshima the, the to, end of the montage yeah, essentially exactly. yeah and like it also makes sense because like 
even though we know kind of how the Eternals thrive and live, I yeah. still think that like when you see that wreckage, it's not still. Um, uh, I don't know what to smoldering. Say. Smoldering, yeah, yeah. It is. It's it's the the rubble and the 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 aftermath uh, yeah. that is that has stilled. Yeah. Um. So what I'd like to do, I have a discussion in mind. Um, okay. But what I'd like to do is do a bit of a um, <laughs> Ken Burns esque sort of narration of the bombing of Hiroshima, also talking briefly about Nagasaki, mm-hmm. and then having a couple of uh, interesting combinations of the two, and then we'll get into some um, debates about who's right, Black Panther or Eternals. Okay. During the night of the 5th and 6th of August, Japanese early warning radar detected the approach of numerous air, American, American aircraft headed for the southern part of Japan. Radar detected 65 bom- bombers headed for Saga, 102 headed for Maibashi, Maibashi, 261 en route to Nishinomiya, and 111 for, headed for Ube, and 66 bound for Imabari. An alert was given and radio broadcasting stopped in many cities, among them Hiroshima. The all clear was sounded in Hiroshima at 0005, so five minutes after midnight at five minutes after midnight. About an hour before the bombing, the air raid alert was sounded again as the plane, which was called Straight Flush, flew over the city. It broadcast a short message, which was picked up by Enola Gay. It read, Cloud cover less than three tenths at all altitudes, advice bomb primary. The all clear was sounded over Hiroshima again at, at 0709. At 0809, Tibbetts, that's the guy flying in Gay, which has the atomic bomb on it, started his bomb run and handed control over to his bombardier, Major Thomas Farabee. The release at 0815 Hiroshima time went as planned, and the little boy, which is the type of atomic bomb that it was, containing about 64 kilograms of uranium-235, took 44.4 seconds to fall from the aircraft, flying at about 9,400 meters, to a, desti- to a destination height of about 580 meters or 1,900 feet above the city. Enola Gay traveled 18.5 kilometers or 11 and a half miles before it felt the shockwaves of the blast. Due to the crosswinds, the bomb missed the aiming point, which was the AOI br- AOE bridge, by approximately 240 meters or 800 feet and detonated directly over the Shima Surgical Clinic, which, um, which fucking sucks. Um, even, you know. Even more. It released the equivalent energy of 16 plus or minus 2 kilotons of TNT, um, which is 16, 6.9 plus or minus 8.4 terajoules. Um, the weapon was considered very inefficient with only 1.7% of its material fissioning. The radius of total destruction was about 1.6 kilometers or 1 mile, with resulting fires across 11 square kilometers or 4.4 square miles. Uh, it stayed over the target area. Enola Gay stayed over the target area for two minutes and was 16 kilometers or 10 miles away from when the bomb detonated. Only Tibbetts, Parsons, and Farabee knew of the nature of the weapon. The others on the bomber were only told to expect a blinding flash and given black goggles. It was hard to believe what we saw, Tibbetts told reporters, while Parsons said the whole thing was tremendous and awe-inspiring. The men aboard with me gasped, my God. He and Tibbetts compared the shockwave to a close burst of ACAC fire. I believe it's like anti-aircraft I believe fire. So. Um, and now, Colin, before we get into Nagasaki, I want to send you two pictures which um, shocked me. So I'm going to send okay. them to you in uh, in Facebook Messenger. Okay, that is Hiroshima before the bombing. 
And this is the same picture, the same location of picture after the bombing. Um, so it, it's, there's nothing there anymore. Like it's wild. It's, it's like, we'll, we'll post these, um, somewhere. I mean, it's just, there's nothing like, it's like, oh yeah, that's a city. And then below it's like, oh, this is untilled earth. Um, it's absolutely, um, shocking. Um, it really put in to sort of Mm. into my mind what we were talking about here, the level of devastation. So that was Hiroshima. Then on August 9th, 1945, which was actually two days before it was supposed to happen, but there was like storms of Bruin. At 11.01 Japanese time, a last minute break in the clouds over Nagasaki allowed the boxcars bombardier, the plane that flew the bomb over Nagasaki was called the boxcar, which I now recall... Hmm. is one of the reasons why Tom named it Boxcar Racer. Um, was about that, because it's, you know, nuclear war and, right. and post-apocalyptic stuff. Uh, a boxcar, Boxcar's bombardier Captain Kermit Bagan to visually sight the target as ordered. The Fat Man weapon, which um, was more, it was a bigger one, right. uh, containing a core of about five kilograms of plutonium was dropped over the city's industrial valley it exploded 47 seconds later at 11.02 Japanese time at 503 plus or minus 10 meters or 1650 plus or minus 33 feet above a tennis court halfway between the Mitsubishi Steel and Arms Works in the south and the Nagasaki Arsenal in the north. This was nearly three kilometers or 1.9 miles northwest of the planned hypocenter. The blast was confined to the Urakami Valley and a major portion of the city was protected by the intervening hills. The resulting explosion released the equivalent energy of 21 plus or minus 2 kilotons of TNT, I would imagine, or 87.9 plus or minus 84 terajoules, which is um, 20. Yeah, it's like 25 more terajoules than right. the Hiroshima. Big Stink spotted the explosion from 160, kilometer, 160 kilometers or 100 miles away and flew over to observe. So that was Nagasaki and... Um, so now um, there's some debate, um, which we sort of talked about before the episode started, um, about the morality of this. Like, <laughs> so there are some people that say, um, it says uh, U.S. justification is uh, the bombings caused the Japanese surrender, thereby preventing casualties that an invasion of Japan would have involved. Uh, Stimson who is someone that they've mentioned in an earlier part of the article, talked of saving one million casualties. The naval blockade might have starved the Japanese into submission without an invasion, but this would also have resulted in many more Japanese deaths. However, critics of the bombings have cited a belief that atomic weapons are fundamentally immoral, that the bombings were war crimes, and that they constituted state terrorism. Others, such as historian Tsuyashi Hasegawa argued that the entry of the Soviet Union into the war against Japan, which they did, Soviets entered the war in like early August. Like I think basically Europe finished. Right. And so then they were like, hey, Soviets took like a took a July off. And then we're like, hey, what's going on over here with this war? And then, yeah. 
into the war against Japan played a much greater role than the atomic bombs in inducing Japan to surrender because it dashed any hope that Japan could terminate the war through Moscow's mediation. A view among critics of the bombings popularized by American historian Gar Alperovitz in 1965 is the idea of atomic dis- diplomacy, that the United States used nuclear weapons to intimidate the Soviet Union in the early stages of the Cold War. James Orr wrote that this idea became the accepted position in Japan and that it may have played some part in the decision-making of the U.S. government. So, there's a debate to be had over, you know, it's that greater good, if you, you know, trolley problem sort of situation. Hello, everybody. This is post-production Colin Parker checking in on you real fast before we get to the rest of the episode. Um, So... The reason why I'm cutting it up here a little bit is because this is the section um, right after the last thing that James said where the editing uh, is going to be very different. Um, And that is because what happened was, was we talked for over an hour. And honestly, like, it's an important topic. It's a heavy topic. And because of that, it felt like it was too much. So what I did was, was I edited it down to basically one or two key points from each of us that we both felt were pretty important uh, to say or to mention or to get into or that we felt, you know, I would feel weird about, you know, having this topic come up and me not saying X, Y, and Z, right? So I left all of those moments in and cut any of the things that just sort of felt like we were sort of uh, waxing on... Um, you know, more heavily onto the topic that we maybe could have, you know, just moved past at that point. Uh, but because of that, and uh, because of the fact that there's probably sometimes going to be no segues, the episode's going to feel a little disjointed perhaps here um, moving forward. I, I did my best to make it as smooth as possible, but I also wanted to make sure that I wasn't doing anything like putting in something that was silly, like tangents. Um, that didn't feel appropriate for this uh this episode granted i am talking over music right now but i feel like this is just to represent this is post-production and also this isn't really cute it's just something that i hope also represents uh sort of the emotion that i'm feeling inside which is somber but also still kind of hopeful that we are going to move forward as a world and continue to take care of ourselves and each other again this is a heavy topic so if you need to say we'll see you on friday then we'll see you on friday if not, here is the rest of the episode that we have presented for you today. Thank you. I Okay, here's here's my genuine answer. Yeah. To that. I have never been proud of that choice, right? Like, I think there's probably some people who are like, I'm going to put on some sort of slight difference to my voice just so it doesn't sound like it's me saying it. But I think there's a lot of people who are kind of like, listen, we've got to make these choices. We've got to do these things. You know, this was the right thing to do kind of thing. And I think that our country does not have an incredible track record. And I think that things like history class and nationalism teach us that we're this great country. 
I would argue that we're not. I think that we've done a lot of really fucking terrible things. For me, where I stand on this is that I understand. I totally agree with the um, idea of innovation, like scientific innovation. Mm-hmm. Like I'm like I, I get that hundred percent, but. I think that we could have easily accomplished the same kind of scientific innovation um, working on nuclear power. For sure. Yeah. Um, which is, it, it solves a lot of problems that coal doesn't, oh, know, yeah. that, that, that coal causes. There yeah. are other problems too, for sure. But if we could have had all this time to work on those problems, as opposed to work on, you said nuclear, ah, fallout positions. Let me tell you real quick first about these this group of people called the Hibakusha, uh, which is Hibakusha, maybe. Uh, so that means explosion affected people. That's people that were survivors mm-hmm. of the bombings, right? So then within that, there is a group of people uh, called Niju Hibakusha, which means double explosion affected people. These are people that were affected by the blast in Hiroshima. And? And then took refuge in Nagasaki. Jesus Christ. So. Oh, God. Perhaps as many as 200 people from Hiroshima sought refuge in Nagasaki. The 2006 documentary Twice Survived, the doubly atomic bomb of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, documented 165 Niji Hibakusha, um, nine of whom claimed to be in the blast zone of both cities. On March 24th, 2009, the Japanese government officially recognized Tsutomu Yamaguchi as a double Hibakusha. He was confirmed to be three kilometers from ground zero in Hiroshima on a business trip when the bomb was detonated. He was seriously burnt on his left side and spent the night in Hiroshima. He arrived at his home city of Nagasaki on August 8th, the day before the bombing, and he was exposed to residual radiation while searching for his relatives. He was the first officially recognized survivor of both bombings. He died on January 4th, 2010, at wow. age 93 of stomach cancer. So, wow. Yeah. Um, so I want to close... So how I want the rest of this episode to go is I want to have a debate within the Marvel Universe. Okay. And, well, kind of. Within these two movies or these two situations. And then I have, there's this book. So a year after um, the bombings, this guy, John Hersey, wrote this essay called Hiroshima that was going to appear in four issues of The New Yorker. And instead, they just put it all in one issue. The whole issue that month, that week, was this this article, Hiroshima, which later got turned into a book. Um, and it's really good. And I want to close um, close out the episode. All right. So now here's my host, Jen, which you are, you are very welcome to participate in. Okay. I put it this way, and I kind of want to make maybe expand upon this as, as we go. Who is right? Wakanda, seeing the way that people use the technology they have and deciding that vibranium would be too dangerous if it were to fall into the wrong hands... They decided they needed to conceal all evidence of their advanced technology. And that is to the detriment of people that they could have helped with their advanced technology, which is sort of what Black Panther is about. Right. Fastos, 
gave the humans technology or introduced it to them or inspired them or however we want to interpret that. He feels responsible for the humans having technology, even knowing what they were capable of, and mourned when they used it for genocide in the exact same way that Druig had talked about with the guns in the 1500s. Right. Is they used the atomic bomb for genocide. So I think the debate here, and if I may, a central debate in the MCU is if you have power, should like the con- the, the the concept of like let's say there's a ball of power let let's say there are five stones of power or six stones of power let's say there's a bunch of six yeah, six I always yeah. forget the 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 top of the hand one yep. um or the thumb one I don't know I always forget one um who should have it the person who will use it like to advance like should everyone have maximum technology like the extreme exa- the extreme question is if you can only have one, should the world all be no technology or everyone has no technology or everyone has maximum technology? Like, I think the central question in a lot of MCU stuff is how should power be used and can people in general be trusted with it or not? Or who can be trusted with it? The government? Scientists? Right. Kids? I think, I, uh, yeah, I, I, here's why that is a really tough question for yeah. me. I think that unfortunately, no answer is correct. Correct. Absolutely. 100%. And same with the, you know, the in-between, right? Yeah. I Though to some extent, the in-between is the, maybe the more moral decision, right? And it's one of those things where it's one of the reasons why I think like a team like the Avengers exists, right? Where, you know you have faith in humanity and you are always hoping that people will continue to do what's right by those around them. Right. Uh, and you try your best to provide what you can for those that you can help, which is again, the purpose of black Panther, right. Of saying, you know what? We've, we've, we've locked ourselves away for really like kind of just far too long and look at all of the people that we could have helped that yeah. we didn't because we were afraid of what would happen if our stuff fell into the wrong hands. But at the same time, without our stuff falling into the wrong hands, they still got hurt. Right. You know? Right. Um, and I think that's why the Avengers exist, right? Like, uh, or really just the heroes in general, but you know, by them existing, it does invite some extra chaos. Right. That is something that J. Jonah Jameson always says about like Spider-Man, you know, of like there weren't super powered costumed freaks in New York City until Spider-Man arrived. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think, though, that in general, there's also all those other people that Spider-Man saves. Right. Not just from the supervillains, but also right. from things like robberies and, you know, assaults and all these other things. Right. Like. He goes out there and he protects everybody, no matter what the size of threat is. And same with the Avengers. You know, they they hope and they protect and they do what they can. And then when things get worse because they put their faith in someone or whatever and they still took it too far, they are there to immediately try to save as many people and keep people moving as far forward as they can. Right. 
I think that by taking away all technology, I think you lose communication. Mm -hmm. I think you lose uh, um, medicine and well, yeah. I, I was trying to think of a, of a word to say to this because, like, when I say when I say power, I don't necessarily mean like might, right? Right. But more of like the like will like the 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 power of the people I oh think i thought you were saying like uh electricity okay well yes i mean i think like all of your amenities and all that other stuff right right you know you're kind of going back to like stone age type situations right right i think without technology though what happens is you make the world smaller mm -hmm. um and the problem is is that then when people do travel does that then get met with aggression right right People travel today and are still met with aggression, but I think that by having the world be a little bit more open, I think you stand a greater chance of having it be 50-50 as to how someone interacts versus being like, whoa, you're not like me. That's scary. I've never seen this. I'm in defensive you know, mode or whatever. Or right. there's no form of communication between the two of us. How can we, you know, there's nothing to be reconciled. You know, this is bad. Boom. Fine. Right. Uh, what I wanted to say about this was, um, it's like, I mean, like civil war is what comes to mind for me. And so like, if there are powers, Marvel civil war, Marvel civil war, yeah, yeah. right. Uh, Captain America civil war, um, because there was only one side of it and it was Captain America. Um, if there are powers, should the government be able to be in control of them? Is the debate in that should, who, should they have to register? And so then, you know, one side is like, no, secret identities, government oversight, blah, blah, blah. On the other right. side, it's, okay, but if the government can make sure that, you know, we're operating safely, that we're taking into account the context of the situation, all this stuff, and the debate goes on. I think there's also a debate about big government versus little government, where it's like, for me, personally... I want a government that can take care of the people that it's the government of. For people that want a smaller government, the thought is, I don't want some stranger half a country away dictating what I can do. I can take care of myself. I think both, both points have some naivete to them. Like... You know, the idea that governments aren't corrupt on my side, the idea oh, that you sure. can take care of yourself. Oh, yeah. How, how's your electrical, um, you know, wiring situation? You know, wh where's your, you know, there's lots of stuff that people don't realize is, is governmental that uh, is governmental. But all this to say, I think that for me, the conclusion about technology and of course, the no technology or all technology is a limit, like approaching the limit of infinity and approaching the limit of zero, where it's like. Obviously, no technology. We have to figure out what that means. All technology. First, we have to get rid of a lot of systemic bigotry and racism before anyone's going to allow all anything to do anything anywhere. Like, you know, people would, would absolutely shit themselves to think of, uh, you know, people in Africa having access to the technology that people in Manhattan have access to. Which is, they sometimes so have that things. issue with their own people in their own country. Right, right, right. 
Um, so yeah. I think that the thing is the technology, the problem with technology and the great thing about technology is that it can both be nuclear power and nuclear war. You know, you can germ warfare versus, you know, genetic uh, therapy, all this stuff back and forth. I was talking to, to Kristen, she's watching a show that I'm not sure I want to necessarily specifically name, but we were talking about a show in which a character early on, his dad's a scientist and his dad shows him sort of dissecting animals, right? Because his dad's a scientist, he's like, cool, the kid likes science. But because this guy turns into a serial killer, the audience is like, oh, crap. He's dissecting animals. And the right. diff And I was talking to Chris, and I was like, the difference between serial killer, who's interested in dissection, and future surgeon, who's interested in dissection, is, is so thin. Unbelievably different. Yeah. I mean, nowadays, it's, it's a lot further away, I suppose, than it was in, like, the 19th century, when it was like, I don't know, kind of both. I mean, like... I think that that's one of the situations where it's like the, the, I think the difference is huge, but the yeah. line between them is very small. Yeah. 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 It's like, it's like you start at the same point and then start walking in sort of opposite directions. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Anyways. So I think that it's, it's a double-edged sword quite literally. Mm -hmm. Like a double-edged sword is another good example of a double-edged sword of technology. So. <laughs> right. Um, um, I think that. You're probably right that the atomic bomb was, might have been better in hands of people that aren't as the government is everything as other countries. I think that that's probably true. Um, we also employed Nazis to to help us uh, get right. it done. So I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess that was. I guess we didn't employ Nazis for this, but like, right? I mean, no, we, we took we took a bunch of scientists yeah. and yeah. yeah. I grabbed the wrong book. So um, I'd like to uh, take us out of here. Actually, I'm going to read it from this screen that I have. I have like <laughs> I have like four copies of this thing open in my life right now. Like right. I have it from the library. I have it on my desktop, on my phone, all this stuff. Um, so I'd like to close us out, if I may, mm -hmm. uh, for this like pretty somber episode, I would say. I mean, yeah. I think we got into some stuff. I'm sure you'll cut a lot. Oh, I and, like, can guarantee you it's going to be. As we said in the slavery episode, I don't, I don't have any sort of degree in history. Right. I passed history. Correct. And it was, you know, American. It's, it's also yeah, the, the history so, that our nation decides right. what we learn. I mean, you know. I guess we went to school in a post uh, people's history of the United States world. So I like to think mm -hmm. that we were on the rise of a more, um, even-handed or uh, what's the word uh, truthful or factual based historical education than perhaps our parents were or like our right the pre previous generations but there are going to be flaws because you can't know everyone I, I will tell you i found that history class in college was vastly different from history in public school i found my ep history test my ep history class and this is Basically, as I understand the design of AP history classes, was very similar to my college right. history class. Right. Yeah, because it's it's um, supposed to be like college level courses in right. high school. Yeah. Right. Um, check out this segue. Ready? Yep. No. Um, like I said, <laughs> um, I think oh, that, I that teaching a truly um, all encompassing or universalist history is really, really, really hard. Because you're all, it's not that there are two sides to every story. It's that right. there are 
a bajillion sides An to every story. Amount of stories, yeah. So this story by John Hersey um, about Hiroshima is about the survivors from the perspective of the survivors. Um, it's long, and so I'm not going to, of course, read it all because this isn't an audio book. You have to pay me for that, listener. Um, go to patreon.com. No, go I'm to patreon.com for never, the full reading. I, I would not do that. <sighs> Page 45. Um, all right, so this you is can the- take breaks. It's not one take. <laughs> have you seen that thing that's like an audio book that's eight hours of silence and then like, oh, you mean that loud? Yeah. <laughs> I forgot what that's from, but yeah, that's very good. All right. So this is from John Hersey's uh, Hiroshima. This is the introduction. This is the first like paragraph of uh, the first part, which is called A Noiseless Flash. At exactly 15 minutes past 8 in the morning on August 6, 1945, Japanese time, at the moment when the atomic bomb flashed above Hiroshima, Miss Toshiko Sasaki a clerk in the personnel department of the East Asia Tin Works had just sat down at her place in the plant office and was turning her head to speak to the girl at the next desk. At the same moment, Dr. Masakazu Fujii was settling down cross-legged to read the Osaka Asahi on the porch of his private hospital, overhanging one of the seven deltaic rivers which divide Hiroshima. Mrs. Hatsuyo Nakamura, a tailor's widow, stood by the window of her kitchen, watching a neighbor tearing down his house because it lay in the path of an air raid defense fire lane. Father Wilhelm Kleinsorg, a German priest of the Society of Jesus, reclined in his underwear on a cot on the top floor of his order's three-story mission house, reading a Jesuit magazine, Stimmen der Zeit. Dr. Terufumi Sasaki, a young member of the surgical staff of the city's large modern Red Cross hospital walked along the hospital corridors with a blood specimen for a Wasserman test in his hand. And the Reverend Mr. Kayoshi Tanemoto, pastor of the Hiroshima Methodist Church, paused at the door of a rich man's house in Koi, the city's western suburb, and prepared to unload a, a handcart full of things he had evacuated from town in fear of the massive B-29 raid which everyone expected Hiroshima to suffer. A hundred thousand people were killed by the atomic bomb and these six were among the survivors. They still wonder why they lived when so many others died. Each of them counts many small items of chance or volition. A step taken in time, a decision to go indoors, catching one streetcar instead of the next that spared him. And now each knows that in the act of survival, he lived a dozen lives and saw more death than he ever thought he would see. At the time, none of them knew anything. 